first day, heaven Peter. extended its irresistible arm and held the cleaver of fate in its fist and it cut us off. Uh, radio died in the fall of 1953, I suppose, that last season. To give you an example of how grim it was out in 1959, they removed suspense from the West Coast to New York in order to save $80 in sound effects technicians. Well, I saw it, sadly enough, just dying, uh, you know, like leaves falling from a tree in the autumn. Program after program were taken off the air. When radio died, and I mean it died with a big bang, it just died out there in California. They tried to move it back to New York. And it had to die suddenly and violently because the networks could no longer sustain it because they intended to go into the new medium television. If they had tried to hold on to radios, yeah, they might have for a season or two. You know, there was no money in the to close the television. that leave you high, huh? Left me feeling treetop tall. That was Louis Armstrong's I Can't Give You Anything But Love. And that's all we have time for on the Hot and Mellow Hour tonight. Yes, 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 this is Smiley Smith, your favorite disc jockey. I hope, I hope, booting the Hot and Mellow Hour home for this evening. I'll be back again tomorrow night, minus the music, but with a little surprise for you. Tomorrow night, Friday night, as you know, is stunt night here at station WXP, and have I got a stunt for you. Last week, if you remember, I planted my wire recorder in the steam room at a lady's Turkish bath and let you listen in on the playback, remember? <laughs> well, tonight, as soon as I leave the studio, do you know where I'm going? Hmm? Your friend Smiley is going to spend the night in a haunted house on a spook hunt. You heard me, a spook hunt in a haunted house. I'm bringing my little old wire recorder along with me, and if you tune in tomorrow evening at this time, you'll learn what it's like to spend a night in a haunted house. Ain't that something? <laughs> a real haunted house. No kidding. Four people are known to have committed suicide there. So tune in tomorrow night and share a real thrill with your old pal Smiley, I must be crazy, Smith. Good night. <laughs> This is Elliot Lewis. I believe there's a place for experimental drama in radio. The play you're going to hear is such an experiment. It's debatable whether it's too personal an experience. I don't think it is. Some of you may be offended, some revolted, some excited by the sharing of this experience. At all events, since it is an experiment, and since we'll be dealing with those strange depths in a man's mind called his subconscious, we ask your attention. The play is called... Welcome to Breaking Walls, episode number 84. My name is James Scully. Tonight on Breaking Walls, it's the simple art of macabre. To your ears, from the mouths of some of the best 
who ever produced radio stuff of nightmares. If this is your first time listening to Breaking Walls, welcome to the show. You can find this show everywhere you get a podcast and at thewallbreakers.com. Our opening theme song tonight is Seance on a Wet Afternoon, originally composed by John Barry and re-recorded by Nick Rain. I'd also like to thank you, the listener. Our audience is now 25 times larger than the last year at this time. And if you're tuning in via iTunes, give a quick show rating. It helps more people find Breaking Walls. Yet unannounced, I've got new audio projects in the works. I hope to reveal these over the next couple of months. And by the way, like hard-boiled detective fiction? Give a listen or a re-listen to our six-part audio drama miniseries, A Man Named Marlowe. Set in 1935 Los Angeles, it stars Raymond Chandler's famous private eye, Philip Marlowe. It's available in the same feed as this podcast. You may also support these shows and unlock bonus content and other clips for as little as $1 per month at patreon.com slash thewallbreakers. On today's program, you're going to hear many distinct voices. Let's introduce some of these people. And speaking of these people, right now I'm going to ask the Vice President of Spurdvac, Larry Gassman, to stand up here and introduce these people. <laughs> this is going to be fun. This is going to be interesting. We've been looking at Today, Larry Gassman is the President of Spurdvac, and on August 14, 1982, he was the MC for a panel discussion featuring several well-known West Coast radio character actors. Larry, Brother John, and Walden Hughes had their own show of radio recollections, which you can listen to via YesterdayUSA.com. I would think that anything can be much more frightening if you can conjure it up yourself in your own mind than someone else would do it for you. Chuck Shaden interviewed members of the radio community for almost 40 years. He himself is a member of the Radio Hall of Fame, class of 1993. Chuck still runs his own site, speakingofradio.com, where you can stream tons of his interviews for free. And it is a great pleasure to have Elliot Lewis, who did just about anything you can do in radio, starred in many suspense broadcasts. In the 1980s, John Dunning hosted a Golden Age program in Denver on 71K News Talk Radio and wrote on the air, Encyclopedia of Old Time Radio. And I'm looking forward to today's show because we're playing the types of programs that I enjoy the most. Usually from under the bed, I must admit to that. Our shows were the first shows Dick to Dick really and late Ed Corcoran hosted the Hartford, Connecticut-based Golden Age of Radio program for WTIC in the 1970s. The pair interviewed numerous stars during the show's almost seven-year run. For more information on the program and to download interviews from their archives, please go to goldenage-wtic.org. I think that radio was probably one of the most exciting medias that ever was. The audience had to do a lot of work. I did a great many uh, oh, suspense and escape and all of those radio theaters. And the audience really had to build the sets, to create the makeup, to figure out what they thought the people were like, what the ambiance of the drama was like. It was terribly exciting. And almost everybody that I've ever known who has made a success in the theater started in radio.
Care for a cigar, Mr. Thorpe? I got some cigars in the dash there. No. Well, no reason for you to carry a chip on your shoulder, Mr. Thorpe. Oh, really? Well, I don't like this fool stunt. Well, I don't see it as a fool stunt at all. I really don't. I think it's the only way you're going to unload this house. Ordinary selling methods won't work in a case like this. Now, don't forget the reputation saddling this house. Four suicides since 1939. You know what people call it. The death trap. Yes. It's a lot of nonsense. Sure, but try to convince people of that. Anyway, when this disc jockey offered me this chance to kill all the rumors about the death trap... About the property... I just naturally jumped and took him up at it. Especially since it don't cost a cent. You sure about that? I'm not liable for a penny. Not a cent. We're doing him a favor letting him use the place, he said. Thanked me for the chance last night when I drove him out here. So one hand washes the other, as the feller says. He got a chance to pull off a stunt, and the wire recording will prove the people the property is A number one, and we increase the chance of selling the place. Well, as long as it doesn't cost me anything. Not a thing. He's using his own recorder, and I'm paying for the rental of a couple of walkie-talkies he hooked up to. Well, uh, what about this, uh, Reed? Does he charge anything? He comes gratis, too. Dr. Reed is a, uh, whatchamacallit, a psychic investigator. Belongs to a couple of societies that do nothing but hunt ghosts. <laughs> he showed me articles he's written about it in their magazine. Uh. Well, here's the house. Yeah, looks real nice in the sunshine, don't it? Yeah, man, smell that sea breeze. You don't have to sell me. Well, let them know we're here. Probably asleep up all night and everything. Why don't they come out? Do you think they've gone? Well, I told them last night I'd pick them up around 11. Uh, Smith! Smith! Hey, Smiley! Dr. Reed! Yeah, fast asleep, I guess. We better go in and wake him up. Of course, they may have taken the bus back to town. No, no, no. It's a two-mile hike, the main highway. Smith! Hey, uh, Smiley. Where are you? Wake up. You don't suppose, uh, do you? Oh, no, no. Uh, Smith? Uh, Dr. Reed? What's that, that, uh, clicking noise from in there? Well, it's his wire recorder. He left it running. These machines cost a lot of money. Doesn't he care if he uses up his batteries? Well, where is he? And where's this reed? Maybe they're upstairs. Uh, Smith? Hey. Anybody home? They must have walked to the highway and taken the bus. Well, he wouldn't have left his machine. Well, where are they, then? Where are they? No, no, no. Don't get excited, Mr. Thorpe. Don't tell me not to get excited. If something's happened to them in my house, I'm liable. Well, you try this side. I'll try that one. All right. Uh, Smith. Hey, Smiley. Smith. Smith. Oh. McDonald, come here. No, what? What it? Oh, no. Reed. Dr. Reed. No, no, don't touch him, Mr. Thorpe. You'll get your hands off. Look. Blood. Is he dead? I can still feel his pulse. We better get him to hospital fast. 
It's far more frightening if one were to sit in a room and suddenly a chair that one has known all one's life begins to rock or suddenly begins to glide over the floor toward you. That'd be a far greater monster than anything Hitchcock ever mm. showed. Or if you heard a noise outside and you turned and that old familiar bush outside the window the branches were suddenly like long fingers scraping at the window toward you. I need to go further. Why do we like to be scared? What is it about the unconscious and the unexplained that drives human beings to scream, to laugh, to pray? Organized religions, nations, even families all have origin stories and stories of the hereafter. Have you ever experienced anything otherworldly and illogical? Most of us have. Like the face you didn't quite see in the darkness. You know, the thing that made your hair stand up in the middle of the night. Was it something we just didn't fully understand? Or was it something else? Something not of the living? Could it be both? Star, wavy lines, square, seven, seven, three. CBS Radio and its 217 affiliated stations present the CBS Radio Workshop, radio's distinguished series dedicated to man's imagination, the theater of the mind. Tonight, Report on ESP, a study of clairvoyance, telepathy, and extrasensory perception, taken from actual case records. Ladies and gentlemen, Mr. John McIntyre. Extrasensory perception, clairvoyance, telepathy, precognition. These are the laboratory words. But in everyday life, you and I are faced with a multitude of strange occurrences. Item. A man is about to board a certain airliner. Suddenly, on a hunch, he turns back to the ticket window and changes to another flight. An hour later, the plane he would have been on crashes into a mountainside. Item. A mother suddenly and unaccountably breaks into tears at the moment her son is killed a thousand miles away. Reason? Unknown. Unexplained. Cross. Square. Today, modern scientists are delving deeper and deeper into these mysteries. In the science laboratory of a great university, a girl sits at a table and draws cards from an automatic shuffling machine. On the face of each card is one of five possible designs. A star, a circle, a cross, a square, three wavy lines. Without looking at the cards, the girl tries to identify the designs by mental impressions by clairvoyance. At another table, a man watches dice tumble about in a revolving cage. The man calls out a number. Six. The dice are cast. The number is six. At still another table, an experimenter stares at a photograph of a tree and tries to project the mental image of this tree to an artist at a drawing board in the next room.
People in the United States have been fascinated with seeing the odd and unexplained at circus sideshows, carnivals, and curiosity museums since before the United States was a country. Local folk stories have been passed down and corrupted from generation to generation. The first institution to be called the American Museum was founded in 1791 by John Pintard in New York City. The museum changed hands several times until it settled under the control of John Scudder. He and later his sons ran the museum until 1841 when it was purchased by P.T. Barnum. That same year, Graham's Magazine published Edgar Allan Poe's Murders in the Rue Morgue. It is today considered the first modern detective story. Located at the corner of Broadway and Ann Street in New York City, Barnum's Museum offered both strange and educational attractions like General Tom Thumb, a three-foot dwarf, the Fiji Mermaid, an object comprising the torso and head of a juvenile monkey sewn to the back half of a fish, Josephine, the bearded lady, William Henry Johnson, known as Zip the Pinhead, and Chang and Eng, the Siamese twins. For the price of admission, anyone, no matter their class or background, could enter and see the abnormal, the grotesque, and sometimes the completely phony. Barnum's final incarnation of his American Museum burned down in 1868. Two years later, he got into the circus business. In 1900, the United States population was 72 million, a rise of 21% from 1890. His new wealth and an emerging middle class found themselves with free time. Family vacations became a more commonplace affair. By 1904, three amusement parks, Steeplechase, Luna, and Dreamland were open at Coney Island in Brooklyn, New York. featured the weird, the wild, and the absurd with exhibitions and rides like The War of the Worlds, The Trip to the North Pole, Creation, a spectacle portraying the first six days in the Book of Genesis, and the world's first neonatal incubator. Coney Island was also a site for early radio development. In fact, in 1906, Guglielmo Marconi opened up a wireless telegraphy station with the call letters SE at Seagate on the western end of the Coney Island Peninsula. By the time radio stations were signing on the air with great regularity in the 1920s, Coney Island was becoming a radio hub. Famed radio announcer Andre Baruch, later a founder of the Armed Forces Radio Network, got his first job there. My first appearance in radio, strangely enough, was down in Coney Island. And I was walking along the boardwalk with a friend of mine. We came to the Half Moon Hotel, and on the boardwalk itself was a storefront. And it had the call letters, WCGU. And at this point, a man came out and said, frantically, can anybody here do anything? And he pointed to me, my friend, and said, he can play piano. And uh, the man practically grabbed me by the back of the neck, threw me into this room, sat me down at the piano, and the room was entirely walled in by these velvet drapes, 
He then walked to this big carbon microphone, turned on a switch and said, ladies and gentlemen, we now present that distinguished concert pianist, Paul Hart. And I turned around to see who that was, you know. And then he flipped a switch and he said, what are you going to play? And I said, Dizzy Fingers. He said, no, you have to play something classical. Mr. Hart opens his concert this afternoon with... As the American economy boomed in the 1920s, the country became more literate. By that decade, dime store novels had given way to the pulp magazine. Pulps like Weird Tales displayed the fantastic and the horrific. Their covers featured depictions like the ooze, horned devils, fiendish dwarfs, and wolf women. Coupled with their interior stories from authors like Carl Jacobi and H.P. Lovecraft had tantalized the reading public with tales of lurking monstrosities. By the early 1930s, as radio programming became more scripted, Collier Hour serialized stories of Fu Manchu and Street and Smith's detective story Magazine Hour debuted with an ominous host. In 1931, Universal Studios inaugurated its series of monster movies with Dracula and Frankenstein. Horror was in the air, and then it was on the air too. Late that spring, radio's first significant horror program aired on WOR in New York. The Witch's Tale. Written by Alonzo Dean Cole, who later wrote Crime Photographer and The Shadow, The Witch's Tale was born from the tradition of campfire stories. The Witch was old Nancy of Salem. In this episode, The Troth of Death, originally broadcast on May 29, 1933, a man betrays his lover, only to be doomed to spend all of eternity chained in a cemetery. The sound effects were rudimentary. For example, thunder could be achieved by shaking a metal sheet. Producer and director William N. Robeson remembered sound effects in those early radio days. At the beginning, in 1933, when I started with Conquers in the Sky, in order to get a machine gun effect, we had what was called a shot pad, and it was a leather pillow and a slat. The sound effects man would hit this very fast. That was a machine gun burst. I wanted the whine of a shell approaching its target. They didn't have any such effect, and here again, you extemporize. And I said to Gino Severi, the first chairman in the orchestra, can't you give me a glissando on the G-string? And that's what he did, and he went down like that. We want the diving of an airplane, the trombone took it. That was that rudimentary in California in 33. Now, the audience believed it, though, didn't they? Even though it was yes, uh, yes, I don't think one would today, but at that, that time, that time they, they had no basis of comparison. Later, by the time we got around to well, within two or three years, we were using recorded sound effects. We could use recorded sound effects: automobiles starting, stopping, car door, very rudimentary, bad, but again, no basis for comparison. Then we learned to use variable turntables. So you can speed up or slow down and get a, a differentiation that way. The Witch's Tale gained popularity. Once WOR joined the Upstart Mutual Broadcasting System in 1934, the program was nationally syndicated. 
One of my shows, the very first Lights Out, almost took me off there. We got 50,000 letters. Mostly, there were no letters. 50,000 letters for one show? Because I touched a raw nerve of many, many listeners. I learned the responsibility that the artist has in any meeting. In 1934, as Chicago was cresting as the center for radio production, NBC writer and director Willis Cooper created a program for NBC's Chicago affiliate, WENR, that drastically altered the tone of radio horror. Cooper had been writing advertising copy in the late 1920s when he entered radio, writing scripts for NBC's Empire Builders. His idea was to offer listeners a late-night macabre program at a time when other stations were mostly airing music. It emphasized crime thrillers and the supernatural. The first series of shows, each 15 minutes long, ran on Wednesdays at midnight to local audiences. It was called Lights Out. Lights Out, everybody. This is a tale they tell of another Christmas. A Christmas 19 years ago. The Great War was over. The show was gruesome. It created a revolution in radio sound effects and storytelling techniques. There were garrotings, chokings. Fingers were broken by snapping carrots. Heads were severed by slicing cabbage. Bacon was sizzled to give the sound of someone being electrocuted. People fell from great heights and splattered wetly on pavement. Warm spaghetti being turned simulated the sound of human flesh being eaten. Often episodes employed a stream-of-consciousness narrative that would be widely imitated by later programs. Audiences were both horrified and riveted. By April, the series proved so successful, it expanded to a half hour. The following year, it went national. Cooper stayed on until 1936, when he left to write film scripts in Los Angeles. But Lights Out didn't go off the air. Instead, I got a new creative director, Arch Obler. Personally, I never was a good company man. The way I got on the air was I took my last few dollars in New York and got a cast together and rented a 16-inch disc-making machine and put together a broadcast and brought it into Lewis Titterton, the very erudite literary head of the network. I could go on with that one. Anyway, he listened to it. I brought the playback machine, put it on the table. He listened to it, said not a word, picked up the record, disappeared. He went up to see General Sarno. Within an hour, he came back, and he said to me, you're going on the air from 8.30 to 9 on the full network. Congratulations. In 1933, Oberler was struggling to make a name for himself while simultaneously trying to figure out a new way to realize the potential of radio as a medium. That year, he sold his first script, called Futuristics, to NBC for national broadcast. He followed that with scripts for Don Amici's Grand Hotel and Rudy Valley. 
in May of 1936 when NBC gave Obler creative control of Lights Out. He saw the opportunity to formulate the program as true theater of the mind. The first play that I did, again, almost took me off the air. You know, even now, particularly among executives, they don't understand the impact of radio over motion pictures and over television. I've had a, a touch of both, and I know. Because in radio, and it's so old, I had to say to say it, but you give of yourself. You're part of the communication right now as your listeners are turning their pink ears to this. They're working at it because in their mind's eye, they're seeing me, they're seeing you. They're, when I talk of the merchandise mark, they see the merchandise mark. It isn't on a flat screen. In television, you don't give of yourself except at peaks of high drama, sporting events, actualities. But in, in uh, plays, uh, they touch you emotionally, but I challenge the listener to remember the play that moved him a week ago. It's almost impossible. It's on television. On television. television. Play, yes. But in radio, I've had listeners remind me of plays that they heard 40 years ago. I've had that experience again and again. Someone said to me, you know, when I was 10 years old, I heard a play of yours and I've never forgotten it. And I said, what, uh, Black Beauty, uh, King Arthur's Round Table, mm -hmm. Dread as a Child? No, he said. And he told me a story that I wrote that i completely forgotten. And it was done that long ago. And it stayed there in his neuron, so to speak, because he gave of himself when he listened to that. He soon became one of radio's most famous auteurs. Between 1936 and 38, he penned over 100 Lights Out episodes. Many were high psychological art. One story entitled State Executioner suggests the horrors of capital punishment and the dangers of greed by having a state executioner execute a man he knows is innocent because he wants the payment. But the executioner's horror multiplies when he finds out the man was his own son. Hollywood stars such as Boris Karloff were so enthralled with Obler that they clamored to be on Lights Out. He was a charming man, such a gentleman. After, when one thinks of all the horrible things he was in, the leering monsters and that Frankenstein thing. Well, he did an outstanding job for you, I think, on a Lights Out program on a story called Cat Wife. I married a cat! Yes, yes. A man whose wife, because of suggestion and because she has all the latent terrors in her of a witch cat thinks she's a cat you now he tries to hide from cat. the world a cat you hear me a cat stop staring at me like that stop staring at me john what's happening to me john my head I can hardly see john help me Linda! What are you staring at? What are you staring at? What are you... Meow! Linda! Linda! Oh! I always have one marvelous picture of Karloff in Chicago. We finished a broadcast and he disappeared, and I know how shy he was, and I suddenly realized that that he had left his cab and was going down Michigan Avenue. 
And I went after him, and I had to run to get to him. And I said, Boris, what is it? And he said, look, look, pointing over his shoulder. Well, I expect to see Dracula and a <laughs> few others and the vice presidents of the network after him. It was about three little children running after him with autograph books. He was terrified. It seems that even those known for inspiring terror in others can be terrorized by the simplest things. This is Ali Silva of Fireside Mystery Theater, coming to you at a time of great peril. Some fiend has tied me to a rope dangling just a few feet over a giant boiling cauldron of... What is that? It smells like gazpacho? What gazpacho is supposed to be served cold? Oh, whatever. Why would I put myself in such a situation? Because we at Fireside Mystery Theater will do whatever it takes to create exciting audio drama. Enjoy our acclaimed anthology series of original eerie radio plays, performed before a live audience by a full cast of magnificent actors and a crew of amazing musicians and technicians. Just go to FiresideMysteryTheater.com for show listings, info about us, and links to our podcast. Take a listen for yourself today and find out why our podcast is among one of the top audio drama series out there. Oh, brother. That villain is cutting my rope. Well, that must mean my time is up. So tune in and subscribe to the Fireside Mystery Theater podcast. Oh, and be sure to mind the shadow. No, it's absolutely true. Uh, we had known each other when I was at KMPC uh, doing a real wild show called The Hermit's Cave. I don't know if anybody remembers that. But I was the hermit. Certainly, I was the hermit. Ghost stories, weird stories, and murders, too. The hermit knows of them all. <laughs> he, also, he also played the organ, five or six parts, swept up the studio. Absolutely. And did sound effects. Some of us see each other frequently, not as frequently as we would like. But it's such a wondrous thing to meet here at a joyous occasion when it's not a funeral. <laughs> the success of Lights Out and The Witch's Tale drove more local stations to create their own macabre programming. Detroit's WJR launched The Hermit's Cave. Later, WKY in Oklahoma City launched Dark Fantasy. Both eventually were nationally syndicated. Noted radio character actor John Daner found himself in an early role as the hermit in the hermit's cave. And the shadow became Lamont Cranston, wealthy young man about town who could cloud men's minds and become invisible. Cranston's secret was shared only by his friend and companion, the lovely Margot Lane. On Sunday, September 26, 1937, at 5.30 p.m., Orson Welles debuted as a new crime-fighting hero, The Shadow, on the Mutual Broadcasting System's flagship New York station, WOR. Opposite Welles' Margot Lane was Miss Agnes Moorhead. She was a founding member of Welles' Mercury Theater Repertory Company. The program's announcer was Ken Roberts. I had come to CBS as a very, very young man in early 1931. One day, fortune smiled upon me, and I was asked to come on to a program which was fairly new at that time and had been on the air, I believe, a year or maybe less, a program called The Shadow. I was not the first announcer, but I did come on to the program in 1931, at which time The uh, Shadow 
was nothing like what it was in later years when it featured Lamont Cranston. When I came onto the show, The Shadow was a series of dramatic crime programs solved by different detectives every week. The role of The Shadow on that program was to introduce it and to act as something of a narrator. And once he had done his opening line, he was practically finished on the program until the very end of the show when he came back with the weed of crime bears bitter fruit, crime does not pay, the shadow knows. A show named The Shadow had been on the air since 1930, but until this time the mystery man served only as a narrator of anthological crime stories adapted from the pages of Street and Smith. Shadow author Walter Gibson remembered. Now comes the funny part. Blue Cole said, we'll pay you something for it. It's right, Street and Smith property, you control the thing, so forth. Do what you want with them. Street and Smith says, yes, but we don't want those. We want programs that have to do with the shadow because we're going to use it to promote the shadow magazine. And all you have to do is look at the ads in the shadow magazine and you can see why they were saying that. And finally, Blue Cole said, we'll tell you what we'll do. We'll take it for one season. Go ahead, have one of the shadow stories. Let our script department work on them. Because we've got fellows that have been writing the kind of stuff. We'll run it. If we don't like it, we'll quit. But they said, if it's no good, can we have the shadow back as an announcer? Well, Street and Smith, having nothing to do, said, well, we'd consider that, but let's see how it makes out. He was Lamont Cranston, wealthy man about town. As the shadow, he had the ability to cloak himself with invisibility and to read minds. They were tools of mesmer, learned through years of study in the Orient and India. Ladies and gentlemen, we take pleasure in presenting the fascinating and beautiful dancer of the Far East, Sadi Bel Ada. For our first number tonight, she will give you the dance of the cobra, Zadi Bel Ada. This is from the October 24th, 1937 episode, The Temple Bells of Niban. Look, isn't she lovely? Yes. The shadow meets Real an Indian woman too. named Real Sadi Bel Ada, capable of using the same powers. She knows his identity. She is the niece of Cranston's former teacher, now turned to the dark side. You know, the cobra is connected with the old Indian mysticism, the most ancient of magic. See how she quiets the snake, makes it sway to the motion of her hands. Mm. It's a form of mesmerism. We've never improved on that with all our modern psychology. I hope its fangs have been removed. Well, they undoubtedly have. So, this is the one they call Sadi Belada. Jerry Gleason with that strange look in his eyes. An epidemic of narcotic smuggling. Sadi Bellada. Oh, how graceful she is. <laughs> she keeps looking over here, Lamont. Yeah. It's coming this way. Well. Souvenir for the beautiful lady, Sad. Oh. Oh, a bracelet. Thank you. Bismillahirrahmanirrahim, Rahim, fair lady. You know the tongue of Mother India, Saad. Only enough to make a small prayer. Only enough for that, Sadi Bel Ada. It is good sometimes to know a small prayer. Hmm. Just in case of an emergency? Yes. You are very wise, Saad. In case you should meet someone who could destroy you, Saad. I see. Selah. Just what did she mean by that? I don't know exactly. Funny sort of thing. She seems to know something about me. 
I'm trying to recall where I've seen that face. Blizzard of fan mail came into the mutual broadcasting system. Shadow fan clubs sprang up across the country. Wells would occasionally appear at stores and social functions, donning a black cape, hat, and mask for special promotions. Oddly enough, because Wells was constantly jetting from one part of New York to the other, Frank Reddick, who previously voiced the Shadow as narrator, was kept on to record the Shadow's opening signature, giving Wells a few more minutes to get into the studio. Wells and Moorhead voiced the characters until March 20th, 1938. And now, ladies and gentlemen, that interesting message we promised you. The part of Lamont Cranston and the Shadow has been played by one of the most distinguished figures in the theater today, Mr. Orson Welles, famous for his production of Shakespeare in Modern Dress, a director of the Mercury Theater, producer of Broadway hits like Julius Caesar and The Shoemaker's Holiday. Mr. Welles, still a very young man, is making for himself a unique place in the field of dramatic art. We have been indeed fortunate in having Mr. Wells on our shadow programs. Now I know all of you would like to hear a few words from Mr. Wells. Good evening, ladies and gentlemen. Words can hardly express my great enjoyment in doing this program for you. And now before I leave you, I want to thank our sponsors, Blue Coal, for giving me the opportunity of doing this show. I want to thank our cast for the wonderful work they've done throughout our entire season. And above all, I want to thank you, our listeners, for your loyalty. We all hope you've enjoyed listening to the shows as much as we have playing them. You know, in the theater, we can see our audience. We're able to tell how well we're received by the applause we get. But unfortunately, we have no way of knowing how much you've enjoyed us over the air. Wait, Orson, may I make a suggestion? I certainly, Agnes Moorhead, or... Should I say Margot Lane? <laughs> there is a way. If you've enjoyed this program and would like to let Mr. Wells and all of us know about it, simply phone your nearest blue coal dealer and tell him so tomorrow morning. Tell him how much you've enjoyed the adventures of the shadow. A very fine idea, Agnes. And now, ladies and gentlemen, good night and goodbye. After March 20, Orson Wells recorded additional shadow broadcasts for syndication before heading to CBS for a new project and taking the Mercury Theater with him. Well, I remember that along with three or four other members of the cast who had parts in the first act, going into the newsroom and seeing all the boards lit up, nobody was there, the girls had all gone home, and we picked up the phones. And it was shocking to hear what they said to us and how they yelled at us and cursed at us. And our argument was, well, why don't you tune in some others? We find out that this is not all over America, this is not all over New York. There's no uh, monsters outside from Mars, for God's sake. Wait till the second half of the show. And then finally someone got in touch with Paley and said, my God, this studio is going crazy. The whole uh, city of New York is up in arms, and Harlem people were jumping out of windows. And that's the thing that, you know, I felt badly about. And cars, for some reason, along the Pulaski Skyway in Jersey City, Cars were going 75 miles an hour in traffic. I was on 
One of the phones at CBS when Orson Welles had his War of the Worlds thing and everybody was at a phone. It was frantic. So believable. They were frightened, really frightened people were calling. But it certainly caused a lot of new directions in the radio business. They had to be informed if there was any even remote possibility of anybody getting frightened that this was a radio broadcast that was not real, you know. I think that when we got back to the theater and he saw his wife was in the show and all of his actors, uh, he was a little bit leery about what was going to happen. Houseman, his partner, said it was a Halloween trick. Well, it wasn't a Halloween trick. It was done in dead seriousness. It wasn't meant as a trick at all. Because of the situation in Europe, that there was a very nervous thing. During the broadcast, I saw a bunch of policemen in the foyer outside of the door to the studio. I thought, I don't think he's being scared into this. I think he's worried that there's going to be an uprising. Well, there wasn't. There were people that got into their cars and drove, but I don't know whether we were going to drive. Where were you going to drive to get away from the Martians? Columbia Broadcasting System and its affiliated stations present Orson Welles and the Mercury Theater on the Air in The War of the Worlds by H.G. Wells. On October 30th, 1938, CBS broadcast the 17th episode of Orson Welles' Mercury Theater on the Air. It was an adaptation of H.G. Wells' science fiction masterpiece, The War of the Worlds. Ladies and gentlemen, the director of the Mercury Theater and star of these broadcasts, Orson Welles. Many listeners missed the opening introductions of the Mercury Theater, identifying the show as an adaptation because they were too busy listening to Nelson Eddy's opening music number on NBC's Chase and Sanborn Hour. Opposite the Chase and Sanborn Hour's commercial and guest drama scene was the portion of the War of the Worlds after the Martians landed and the capsule finally opened. It was here that many Americans tuned their dial from NBC to CBS. Ladies and gentlemen, am I on? Ladies and gentlemen, ladies and gentlemen, here I am, back of a stone wall that joins Mr. Wilmer's garden. From here, I get a sweep of the whole scene. I'll give you every detail as long as I can talk and as long as I can see. The more state police have arrived. They're drawing up a cordon in front of the pit. About 30 of them. No need to push the crowd back now. They're willing to keep their distance. The captain's conferring with someone. Can't quite see who... Oh, yes, I believe it's Professor Pearson. Yes, it is. Now, now they've parted, and the professor moves around one side, studying the object while the captain and two policemen advance with something in their hands. I can see it now. It's a white handkerchief tied to a pole. Flag of truce. If those creatures know what that means, what anything means. Wait a minute. Something's happening. A humped shape is rising out of the pit. I can make out a small beam of light against a mirror. What's that? There's a jet of flame springing from the mirror that leaps right at the advancing men. It strikes them head on. The Lord, they're turning into flames. Now the whole field's caught up by the woods. The bars, the, the gas tanks, tanks of the automobiles spreading everywhere. Coming this way now, about 20 yards to my right.
Ladies and gentlemen, due to circumstances beyond our control, we are unable to continue the broadcast from Grover's Mill. Evidently, there's some difficulty with our field transmission. However, by the 40 minute mark of the broadcast, pandemonium had broken out in CBS's Madison Avenue studios. Fifth Avenue. A uh, hundred yards away. It's, it's 50 feet. listening to a CBS presentation of Orson Welles and the Mercury Theater on the Air in an original dramatization of The War of the Worlds by H.G. Wells. The performance will continue after a brief intermission. This is the Columbia Broadcasting System. The War of the Worlds by H.G. Wells, starring Orson Welles and the Mercury Theater on the Air. At this intermission point, listeners were finally cued in that this was just a dramatization spearheaded by Orson Welles in the Mercury Theater. They had been deceived. In the end, the Martians were defeated, but not by man, by Earth's diseases. When the final curtain closed, Welles, now out of character, took to the air. This is Orson Welles, ladies and gentlemen, out of character to assure you that the War of the World has no further significance than as the holiday offering it was intended to be. The Mercury Theater's own radio version of dressing up in a sheet and jumping out of a bush and saying boo. Starting now, we couldn't soap all your windows and steal all your garden gates by tomorrow night, so we did the best next thing. We annihilated the world before your very ears and utterly destroyed the CBS. You will be relieved, I hope, to learn that we didn't mean it and that both institutions are still open for business. So goodbye, everybody, and remember, please, for the next day or so, the terrible lesson you learned tonight. That grinning... Glowing, globular invader of your living room is an inhabitant of the pumpkin patch, and if your doorbell rings and nobody's there, that was no Martian. It's Halloween. But America wasn't laughing. The world in October of 1938 was very close to war. People enjoyed being scared, so long as they knew it was pretend. And Wells had blurred the lines between truth and fiction. The next morning, in front of reporters, news cameras, and radio microphones, he issued an explanation and public apology while fielding questions. Quiet. You want me to speak now? I'm sorry. Of course, we are deeply shocked and deeply regretful about the results of uh, last night's broadcast. The date of the broadcast was 1939, and it seemed, came rather as a great surprise to us that a story fine H.G. Wells' classic fantasy, the original for so many succeeding comic strips and adventure stories and novels about a mythical invasion by monsters from the planet Mars should have had so profound an effect upon radio listeners seemed to us to be clearly in the realm of the fairy tale. Deeply regretful that this is not so. 
Wells was publicly remorseful, but his ruse had worked. By December, Campbell's Soups signed on as a sponsor, and programs like this were here to stay. Radio drama takes your imagination, embraces the listener like nothing else in the history of theater. Following Japan's declaration of war on the United States, Hawaii has been under two air attacks today. More than 10 persons were wounded when enemy planes machine gunned a town near Honolulu, according to a Reuters dispatch. And General Douglas MacArthur has ordered all women and children in Manila to evacuate the seacoast and move to areas inland. The Dutch East Indies has just declared war on Japan, and Costa Rica in South America has also declared war. Keep tuned to this station for further developments. Inner Sanctum Mysteries, brought to you by the makers of Carter's Little Liver Pills, the best friend to your sunny disposition. Good evening, friends. This is Raymond, your host, welcoming you again to the Inner Sanctum. Come in, won't you? Why am I smiling? Oh, but I always smile when I open the creaking door on Sunday night. You see, each week when I say... Good when I was doing Dick Tracy, for instance, we had a door that you simply couldn't use except once in a blue Sunday because it creaked. The door was just a bad door. We considered it. It creaked, and oh, whenever we found it in the control room or in the studio, I'd hit the ceiling. And then suddenly it dawned on me, maybe there's some very, very good things about something that's very, very bad. And that creak impressed itself on me, and I said, would you believe it, fellas? That creak's going to be the star of the show. And that's how the creaking door happened. And when I sold it to Carter's Little Liver Pills, I had been doing Grand Central Station. That was for Lambert Pharmaceutical. And the man who owned Carter's was very close to the Lambert Pharmaceutical people because they were both drug houses. And he called me one morning and he said, I play golf with whoever runs and owns Listerine. I would like a show like that. What have you got? So I came down with the creaking door and I came down with Bulldog Drummond. And I came down with, I figured the first night of works, I would do dress rehearsal. Because after all, we'd be there the night before the show sure. opened. So <laughs> he listened to all three shows. And he said, I like that mystery series, but I don't like the title, The Creaking Door. I said, what's wrong with The Creaking Door? I don't know. He said, did you have any other titles? Well, with a kind of tongue-in-cheek, I had no other title at that moment. They were down on Park Row, way, way downtown. And I'd gone down on the subway that morning. And in back of the New Yorker magazine, there was always a one-column ad for a group of detective stories published by Simon Schuster called Inner Sanctum Detective Stories. So I said, how about Inner Sanctum? He said, that might be better. I didn't know what the relationship Then I first had to go to Simon Schuster and make some kind of an arrangement with them to use the two or three words that belonged to them. But the creek was mine. I had created that. There are only two sounds in the United States that carry a trademark, not only a copyright, the NBC chimes, which you use, sure. and the creaking door. They're both trademarked. Oh, That's how the creaking door happened. On January 7, 1941, on NBC's Blue Network, a new horror anthology series debuted. Each week until 1952, director Hyman Brown, one of radio's most prolific showmen, and his host, 
the first of which was Raymond Edward Johnson, pushed the listener into a dark world to hear the most unbelievable and sometimes almost impossible tales of murder. I can remember very vividly High Brown coming into famous jury trials when I was doing one of the attorneys in one of the breaks. I said, I have this show here, Ray. I think this is something that you could do and do well. It's kind of a different mystery show. I want to do something with this character, but I don't quite know what it has to be handled with a kind of sense of humor, but yet with a feeling for the mystery. Well, you take the script, see what you can do with it. Looking at the script, I fell in love with the idea. Brown balanced the program's macabre humor with carefully chosen organ sounds, blood-curdling screams, and other effects, creating some of the most unsettling soundscapes ever heard on radio. The organ was used to heighten the listener's fear. Its creaking door became one of the most famous opening signatures in the history of radio. It became the um, necessity of the department, since this would be called on every time Inner Sanctum Mysteries was on, that we would have a squeaking door. So they had to get the best, the longest, the, the most awful squeak that they could get. And they worked on this. And they used vinegar. And they used everything that would give them the best squeak. And finally, they got a good, long, great, wonderful squeak. Horrendous and just fine. So this door that had this squeak was put onto this rolling foundation and was very carefully taken in by several men into the sound department when it was uh, all through for the night, kept there, and rolled out the next time. But, and this is absolute truth, it seems that during the week, some enterprising sound man just happened to walk into the sound department, thought he tried this door, and thought, isn't this awful? <laughs> We've got to take care of this. And so he promptly did, oiled it beautifully, and took care of that squeak for all time until they went at it again. They had to work again weeks, months, to get that squeak, but this actually <laughs> happened. Brown got a start creating soap operas, and many inner sanctum plot points had similar scenarios. The nurse hired by the judge's wife happened to be the girlfriend of the murderer, the judge had just sent to the gallows. The wailing of a man's dead wife, which haunted him for 40 years, was actually caused by a hole in the wall in which he entombed her body. Sound effects technicians devised a special bludgeon that would smash a small melon to give the effect of a head being bashed in. The violence and gore got Brown in trouble with the FCC, who were concerned that youth listening to the program might be unduly traumatized or might use these learning tools to commit murders of their own. When Inner Sanctum Mysteries went on the air, I was attacked by every child study group in the United States. You're scaring your children, and they're, they're, they're frightened to death, and they're doing this and doing that, just the way you get today. All the child study groups attacked me, and listener groups, and Inner Sanctum was a howling, smashing success, and I wasn't about to go off the air. So what I did was create my own psychiatric group that said, this is good for children. And we used my son. I said, Barry, and he would tell the story, on, uh, headed on, on a tape, that he would listen to Inner Sanctum Mysteries, and that, yes, Daddy, I had bad dreams sometimes, but I didn't get up until I dreamed them out good. Host Raymond took great glee in the violent disintegration 
that would occur. You are on the right road for many things if you could. Right. How did you know my name? This episode aired on Sunday, December 7th, 1941, less than 12 hours after Japan attacked Pearl Harbor in Manila, pushing the United States into war. Perhaps ironically, it was entitled The Island of Death. If we do, I'll... Hey! Raymond Edward Johnson left the cast during World War II, and Paul McGrath replaced him as host. The show left such an indelible mark not only American audiences, but Hyman Brown himself, that he twice tried to revive the format. The first time in 1959 with NBC Radio Theater, and the second time between 1974 and 82 with the CBS Radio Mystery Theater. Raymond Edward Johnson remembered in the early 1970s why the mystery story became so powerful on radio. Well, I do feel that this is a great loss. Uh, speaking now of one of the most difficult things to do well, and this was the mystery, uh, mystery shows that we did very well on Inner Sanctum. That especially is a great loss. I do not care how well a mystery show is done on television. You cannot expect to vie with the power of your own imagination and your own imagination will build the most beautiful sets and will make the most horrible things more horrible. It is your imagination. I grew up in the tradition of Arthur Conan Doyle and uh, H. Ryder Haggard, if you will, and, and all of the romantic how will it come out, can she get away by midnight, people, rather than the clanking chains of the purely ghost story. Not that suspense doesn't sometimes have an element of horror, or that horror doesn't have an element of suspense, but I did not specialize in the clanking chains. In the summer of 1940, CBS broadcast a replacement series for the Lux Radio Theater called Forecast. Each week, listeners were encouraged to write into CBS to let executives know which episodes they liked. The most popular could be potentially produced as its own series. This is Hollywood and CBS presenting forecast number four. Herbert On July 22, 1940, CBS Hollywood broadcast an Alfred Hitchcock adaptation suspense. of The Lodger, starring Herbert Marshall, Edmund Gwynn, Noreen Gamble, Joseph Kearns, and Lorraine Tuttle. In The Lodger, a Whitechapel London family takes in a boarder they soon suspect to be Jack the Ripper. CBS called this episode. Suspense. Tonight's forecast program, ladies and gentlemen, represents the ideal form of collaboration. The series' original intention was to give Alfred Hitchcock a vehicle to present a mystery anthology series. Hitchcock had directed a silent film of the same name back in 1926 and had only arrived in America the previous year. Those plans fell through, but two summers later, on June 17, 1942, at 9.30 p.m., Suspense premiered as its own show with a famous mystery by John Dixon Carr called The Burning Court. The Columbia Network takes pleasure in bringing you Suspense. Suspense. Stories from the world's great literature of pure excitement. A new series frankly dedicated to your horrification and entertainment. Week by week, from the pick of new material, 
from the pages of best-selling novels, from the theater of Broadway and London, and the sound stages of Hollywood, will parade the most remarkable figures ever known. CBS gives you suspense. The first six productions were under the supervision of Charles Vanda, who was the executive producer on Forecast. By late July, the series was turned over to William Spear. Well, Bill, when did Suspense go on the air, and were you involved with it from the very first? I was not involved from the very first. The show was conceived by Charles Vanda, V-A-N-D-A, a very wonderful producer and great old friend, in California. And it came about in uh, 1940 as part of a series called Forecast, which CBS put on in the summer as a replacement for the Lux Radio Theater, which used to play 46 uh, weeks a year, but took an eight-week hiatus. And up until then, they had just filled the show with anything that the network could find. But we came up with the idea of using that eight weeks as a a testing ground, a a pilot, it would be called today, a ground for new shows, one of which was Suspense, another was Duffy's Tavern, and uh, many shows, several shows were sold and and went on into uh, getting well-known in radio. Some others fell by the wayside. Suspense, Columbia's parade of outstanding thrillers, produced and directed by William Spear. Spear quickly proved to be an incredible director, and soon a talented crew of radio actors with Broadway cachet were appearing on the series. After Orson Welles finished The Magnificent Ambersons in 1942, he came back to radio that September, on the 11th episode of Suspense, to star in a play written by Lucille Fletcher. The story was called The Hitchhiker. Good evening. This is Orson Welles. And very happy I am to be back in the United States and back on the Columbia Network, even for so short a visit as this one. Back with old friends like Johnny Dietz, who is tonight's director, and Bernard Herman. The Mercury Theater presented tonight's radio play for the first time last year. We came right out then and hailed it as a classic of the medium. Nobody argued the point. A lot of people asked us to do it again, so it's gratifying to get the chance now and to find a favorite of ours in this distinguished anthology of spook shows. Personally, I've never met anybody who didn't like a good ghost story. But I know a lot of people who think there are a lot of people who don't like a good ghost story. For the benefit of these, at least, I go on record at the outset of this evening's entertainment with the sober assurance that although blood may be curdled on this program, none will be spilt. There's no shooting, knifing, throttling, axing, or poisoning here. No clanking chains, no cobwebs, no bony and or hairy hands appearing from secret panels or, better yet, bedroom curtains. If it's any part of that dear old phosphorescent foolishness that people who don't like ghost stories don't like, then again, I promise you, we haven't got it. Not tonight. What we do have is a thriller. It's half as good as we think it is. You can call it a shocker. It's already been called a real Orson Welles story. Now, frankly, I don't know what this means. I've been on the air directing and acting in my own shows for quite a while now, and I don't suppose I've done more than half a dozen thrillers in all that time. Honestly, I don't think even that many, but it seems I do have a reputation for the uncanny. Quite possibly, a little escapade of mine involving a couple of planets, which shall be nameless, is responsible. Doesn't really matter... (laughs) Don't think I disapprove of thrillers. I don't. 
A story doesn't have to appeal to the heart. It can also appeal to the spine. Sometimes you want your heart to be warmed, and sometimes you want your spine to tingle. The tingling, it's to be hoped, will be quite audible as you listen tonight to The Hitchhiker. Lucille Fletcher was most famously known as the author of Sorry, Wrong Number, first broadcast on May 25th, 1943, starring Agnes Moorhead. What about Sorry, Wrong Number? How did they decide that Agnes Moorhead was the right gal to play? Well, I don't think they decided at all. The, the script was written for me. It was? Yes, mm-hmm. by Lucille Fletcher, and it was presented to me. I, I started to read it, and it got so nerve-wracking that I thought, no one will listen to this, you know, because it's just, it just unnerves you as you go along, Mr. Mm-hmm. Bill Spear was the director. He asked me what I thought of it, and I said, well, it's a harrowing story. It would be kind of fun to do because it is a, you know, it's a tour de force. So we went on the air with it. The first time we went on the air, they got so excited at the very end that they didn't do the right ending. The men were so excited that it kind of frustrated the them. The actors? The actors uh-huh. and the sound. And so there were a great many people who were, had been listening in, and they called in and said, what is the end of it? Tell us the end of it. So in about, I would say in about five weeks, I repeated it. Then it was almost a command performance about once, I don't know, I, I did it 18 times on the air. 18? Yes. Oh, my goodness. You and made recordings? Then a recording? Then I made a recording of it with Decca. Famed character actor Hans Conried played the killer. Oh, what a lovely show. Aggie Moorhead, uh, we always felt, was one of the very finest actresses in the English language. And, uh, Aggie, as always, was magnificent. It, of course, was a tremendous tour de force for her. Uh, she did it five or six times thereafter, but I was in the first one, and I did it subsequently two or three times with her. Now, your part was not a major one. There, but there it was, was no was, major uh, part except Miss Moorhead, that's right. frankly, but I was the murderer. That's right. Uh, with a Dutch accent. With a Dutch accent on that occasion. <laughs> six months after suspense went on the air, the production moved from New York to Hollywood. At that time, radio had three major production locations, New York, Chicago, and Los Angeles. I primarily was a California actor, euphemistically and glamorously called Hollywood. (laughs) Uh, Indeed, there were uh, the New York actors, the the shows that came out of New York in the golden days of radio were primarily of a documentary sense and very often a more literate sense and very often a more substantial sense. Chicago was primarily a soap opera production center. Uh, because the uh, the slaughterhouses in those days were in Chicago where the soap was being manufactured of animal fats. That's and interesting. That's exactly the reason for it. And the sponsors and the sponsors' wives who decided upon the artistic merits of any artist uh, were in close proximity to the production. And Hollywood then, you see, uh, when I began in 35, uh, just at that point, San Francisco was the big town on the coast. And uh, up to that point, uh, motion picture artists, motion picture performers were forbidden to appear on radio for fear they would lose their their glamour. And since tickets cost 35 cents apiece to go to the motion pictures, uh, there was a a real problem until someone's nephew, I suppose, in one studio decided, let our actor, our motion movie star, step into your living room. And the phrase was born, and suddenly there became a vogue for motion picture actors now, the movie star was named and starred. He was the great glamorous attraction. And that's how Hollywood expanded into the glamour show. But those surrounding him were the workaday uh, able actors who played part after part after part. On mm. December 2nd, 1943, suspense moved to a new time slot, Thursdays at 8 p.m. 
and Roma Wines became their first sponsor. The added budgets had Hollywood's best looking to be a part of the weekly productions. In fact, that year, Cary Grant was quoted as saying, If I ever do any more radio work, I want to do it on suspense, where I get a good chance to act. Oh, David! She's out there! Something hit the back of the car! It's her! Is the door locked on your side? Yes. Well, what if she breaks the windows? She's got a cleaver. In that flash of lightning, I saw somebody. Is it the crazy woman? I can't tell. She's lying on the road. Can you see her? Is she still there? Too dark to see. Have to wait for the lightning. I saw her! She's getting up now! She'll kill us! She'll kill us! The reason stars wanted to work so badly on suspense? William Spear. Spear liked to give his stars roles they wouldn't ordinarily play. I was very proud always that suspense was able to corral the really distinguished actors from both sides of the country. Uh, and while I was in Hollywood, we had people like Cary Grant and Jimmy Stewart and uh, Olivia de Havilland and Betty Davis and everyone. I can't think of hardly anyone of uh, note, very few anyway, who were not a part of it. I never showed anyone in my life. I have never given a script to anyone for approval. Uh, I don't believe in it. They would do it because they were able to play things that they couldn't play any other, any other way. Jimmy yeah. Stewart would be a, a, a murderer, or Jack Benny, mm -hmm. a murderer, mm -hmm. or Edward G. Robinson would be totally innocent, or uh, Boris Karloff would turn out to be completely wronged, or Peter Lorre. And there was, it was, this was not always true, but there was the chance always for that variation in their lives, which hadn't existed before. Spear also liked to pair actors and actresses who wouldn't normally have worked together. Like in the January 18, 1945 episode, which starred Agnes Moorhead as an elderly lady who hires Frank Sinatra to do chores around her house. I, I don't believe your dog likes me, Mrs. Gillis. Oh, yes, of course she does, but she's just getting a little old and peasy. The only problem is that it becomes quickly apparent that Sinatra is completely unhinged, gaslighting, and planning on murdering her. Spear took a hands-on approach to every episode, molding everything, from the sound effects to the story voice to the music. And he was always quick to give the rest of his crew the credit. The theme was written by Bernard Herrmann. He uh, was a wonderful composer and a great, great guy, and the husband, at the time anyway, of Lucille Fletcher, who wrote Sorry, Wrong Number and... Uh, many of the shows that we did that were uh, superior, superior things. No, that was part of Charlie Vanda's original show, too. I invented the phrase, tale well calculated to keep you in suspense. Suspense. And there again, the one and only Lud Gluskin, who conducted, and his wonderful composers, Lucian Morrowick and Bernard Herrmann and others, were greatly responsible for the impact of those shows, creating of a, of a spell of loneliness or of awe or of majesty or of what, because the narrative principle was so much in use in a show like Suspense. Suspense would go on to have a 20-year run as radio's outstanding theater of thrills. Some stories, like Lucille Fletcher's Sorry Wrong Number with Agnes Moorhead's Tour de Force performance, were repeated over and over. Others, like Ghost Hunt, starring Ralph Edwards from June 23, 1949. In this episode, The House in Cypress Canyon, starring Robert Taylor from December 5, 1946, were performed only once, but were so impactful that they continue to influence the horror medium today. Merry Christmas, Jerry. How's the real estate business? Oh, kind of early with your greeting, aren't you, Sam? Well, I got to get them in sometime. I may not see you again until next Christmas. 
this real estate racket gets any crazy, I'll be dead by next Christmas. <laughs> I'm glad you could get up here, though, Sam. What's on your mind, Jerry? Uh, you, you'll probably shoot me when you hear it, Sam, because I'm probably nuts. But, but doggone it, you're a detective and you're my pal, and I just had to tell somebody. Well, you sound like it's serious. That's just it. I, I don't know what it is, Sam, but... Now, listen, you... You know, we're agents for a group of houses up in Cypress Canyon. Mm-hmm. Those places that were started before the war never got finished. Oh, yeah. All I got in were the foundations, just mm-hmm. concrete and a couple of beams. Well, they've been finished now. In fact, I'm putting up the for rent on the last of them today. What do you want? Police protection from the mob? <laughs> Listen, Sam, this house that I'm talking about, it's got a number now, uh, 2256. But before, when the men went back to work on it about three months ago, well, they just started when the foreman on the job brought me a shoebox that he'd found up on a beam. And this box had a, a what do you call it, a, a manuscript in it, a story, kind of, all written out. Yeah. Well, he gave me the thing. I read it. I didn't think much about it. I put it in my desk. But the other day, and I happened to drive by there, I saw the number on the house and what the house looked like. I thought of this manuscript. And, well, I don't like it, that's all. There's something funny about it. Well, what's funny about it? Well, it, Mind you, this thing was found in an unfinished house in Cypress Canyon. House that was only just started building. All right. Well, listen, Sam, I want to read it to you if you got the time, and you'll see what I mean. All right, shoot. Well, here's how it begins. Uh, To whom it may concern, my reasons for setting down on paper what follows here will be abundantly clear. Will be abundantly clear to anyone into whose possession it may fall. First, let me say that. I'm a very ordinary person. And I found Howard Duff, who had played numerous parts in, you know, in the cast of Suspense and other shows that I did. Oh, yeah. Yeah, I did quite a, quite a few of those, as I remember, once I, uh, once I got to know Bill. And, uh, you know, he was kind of like that. If he mm-hmm. liked you, you worked. You know, they, they weren't really paying me that much to, so that I should just specialize on spades. So I had to do other things. But when, I, when we readjusted my contract... <laughs> yeah, you know, they got a scale, huh? <laughs> Put on the light. Yeah. It seemed to be out there, Jim, in the house somewhere. I'm going to look into this. Jim, you be careful. Come on. Where's, where's my shotgun? In the den, I think. Jim. What? There, there's something wet. What? Wet? Running from under the closet door. Sticky. Uh, Ellen, don't. Don't touch it. I had to. Jim, it's blood. That was a very good show, I recall. It was The House in Cypress Canyon was written by Robert L. Richards, fine writer who, by the way, I first met at the March of Time. He was one of the editors from Time magazine then, and he came out to the coast and got into this. That was a show that was a little different from most of the ones we did. The notion was that you can't tell where you begin and if what has happened is a figment of the man's imagination or not, because the things all fall into place, and just when you think, aha, that's it, it starts over again and seems to be going around in a circle. Mary, no! God, let Let go! I simply don't understand it. Of course, the sound is coming from the basement. It's all right, I've got you, Mr. Adam. No, no. Show me what? 
Gotta get away from those eyes! Get away! Get away! George, get away. no! Are you attracted to the dark? Fascinated by the dramatic? With a side of gruesome and a dash of poetic justice? If your happy place is a gloomy room at midnight, then you should be listening to the podcast, Twelve Chimes It's Midnight. Please join us, won't you, for plays of mystery, horror, and suspense. Find us and subscribe wherever you procure your podcasts. And remember, at midnight, anything can happen. The horror story of all horror stories, for me, it was George Allen, wasn't it, who produced The Whistler? Yeah. Okay. Didn't we have two shows, one for the West Coast and then another TC, uh, on separate days? No. No. Same, Same day. A few hours later, whatever the difference in time. I was into horses at the time. I did the show, I the lead. Did the show, went to the stable, saddled up, climbed aboard the horse, rode across the bridge, through the boondocks, up into Griffith Park, clippity-clop, clippity-clop, hours later, suddenly the blood left my face. I said, holy God, I'm on the air. I'm sitting on a horse in the middle of Griffith Park. Now, what do you do? Nothing. You just clippity-clop back. Rush to the studio. Tell us the truth, you know. Except that you say there was a... The horse got a pebble between his hoof and his shoe. George says, It's all right, John. Fine. We've covered you. Everything's okay. And I said, Oh, God. Thank you. Thank you. It happened a second time. As radio boomed during World War II, it was Inner Sanctum Mysteries who first heavily influenced the horror genre. Many new shows had their own disembodied host. Suspense used Joseph Kearns as the Man in Black. Along with Suspense in 1942, CBS launched a West Coast regional broadcast crime melodrama program sponsored by the Signal Oil Company. It was called The Whistler. Now stay tuned for the mystery program that is unique among all mystery programs. Because even when you know who is guilty, you always receive a startling surprise at the final curtain. In the Signal Oil program, The Whistler. And I know many things, for I walk by night. I know many strange tales hidden in the hearts of men and women who have stepped into the shadows. Yes, I know the nameless terrors of which they dare not speak. And now for the Signal Oil Company, the Whistler's... Voiced by Bill Foreman, the Whistler's narration acted as a modern version of the Greek chorus, omnisciently taunting the characters. Stories were often told from the guilty party's perspective. It was the outcome that was in doubt. The Whistler character proved so popular that it was adapted into eight film noirs by Columbia Pictures 
between 1944 and 1948, and some of Hollywood's best character actors like Hans Conried, Kathy and Elliot Lewis, Gerald Moore, Mercedes McCambridge, and Virginia Gregg were featured so often they began to be known as the Whistler's Children. I enjoyed the people in it, too. Mm -hmm. There was a lot of loyalty, camaraderie. Mm -hmm. See, we were together so much. In the beginning, oh, in the beginning, somebody else said that once. <laughs> uh, in the beginning, they were, oh, I think, 1,500 members of AFRA, then mm -hmm. AFRA. Uh, they figured about 400, 450 did practically all of the work. Mm -hmm. Of course, that wasn't very many, and we spent a great deal of time together, and that was before the days of tape. Mm -hmm. Or even on tape, lots of times you spent many hours together. But we would have a break. You didn't have long enough to go anywhere. We got to know each other very, very well, and our problems, they mm -hmm. were like family. We'd hear about somebody who was having kind of a rough time. We'd go to one of the other producers and say, gee, Dick's having a hard time paying his rent. Do you think there's anything for him next week? And they'd get behind him, and he'd be working. So you'd all act as perhaps an agent for someone yeah, else, if you for could. everybody else. It really is a nice family kind of it relationship. It was. It was. We were very close and very loving, mm -hmm. very caring. And now the Mole Mystery Theater, presented by M O L L E. Mole. The heavier brushless shaving cream for tender skin. In September of 1943, NBC launched their mystery theater, narrated by Bernard Lenro as Jeffrey Barnes, crime fiction connoisseur. Good evening. This is Jeffrey Barnes, welcoming you to the program that presents the best in mystery and detective fiction. Recorded in New York. It featured some Tonight's of the East Coast's best radio character actors, like Art Carney, Jackson Beck, Ann Shepard, Santos Ortega, and Jan Miner, who came from WTIC in Hartford. Well, uh, WTIC was responsible, really, because Gertrude Warner and George Petrie and Ed Begley were all here, and they went to New York, and Tom McRae was here, and he went to New York, so that when I arrived, all of the WTIC people had started mm -hmm. and were working in New York and introduced me to different people and got me at least into some of the auditions. So each one of them really had something to do to help me get going in New York and to tell me what to do. You know, it's, it's not, you just don't know where to go or what to do unless someone tells you. Mutual Broadcasting System presents The Mysterious Traveler. Written, produced, and directed by Robert A. Arthur and David Colgan. And starring tonight, two of radio's foremost personalities, Chester Stratton and Joan Tompkins, in The Lady in Red. Written and directed by Robert Arthur and David Colgan, The Mysterious Traveler first aired on the Mutual Broadcasting System on December 5, 1943. Strange and the terrifying... I hope that you enjoy the trip, that it thrills The only sound of a distant locomotive heralded the arrival of the sinister narrator, portrayed by Maurice Tarplin, who introduced himself each week. Although mostly sustained and often discontinued and revived, the show was popular enough with mutual listening audiences that it later spawned a comic book and a magazine. 
now here's the story, just as Bill Storm wrote it down, when he began to be afraid that maybe he was going to succeed and find the strange and dangerous woman he knew only as the lady in red. My name is Bill Storm. I'm a newspaper reporter. And I'm writing this because I have a date tonight. A date with a gorgeous brunette with big, dark eyes. Apropos of those kind of accidents on the air. Mystery in the Air. Starring Peter Lorre. Presented by Camel Cigarettes. I remember working with Peter Lorre on Mystery in the Air when he threw his script totally up. I think we were doing Crime and Punishment or the Horla, I can't remember, but he was going into an apoplectic fit and he got so taken away with what he was doing, he just threw the script in the air and it all. And we had an audience and everything and it all came down around us and for the rest of the show he ad-libbed his part. I mean, he, they never did get it together for him. I still do not know whether it was the shadow of the madness to which the author himself so tragically succumbed or whether there really was a an evil something that could not be seen or described. Oh, why don't you decide for yourself? Uh, I'm simply going to tell you the facts in a case as set forth by Guy de Maupassant in his immortal story, The Horror. The extraordinary thing was the care that went into radio shows. There was a kind of perfection about the radio actor that was extraordinary. It was a very small group of people. And I always felt myself enormously privileged that I was able to join that group because they didn't take everybody in by a long shot. You were about to experience one of the most terrifying half-hours in your entire life. Oh, yes, I realize superlatives tend to lose their significance by overuse. How many times have you been promised that a story would be the funniest or the most dramatic or the most exciting, only to find that it failed to live up to its advertising? The story you are about to hear is an exception. It is unconditionally guaranteed to chill your blood unless you happen to love rats. We begin now with Mr. Vincent Price. Picture this place. A gray tapering cylinder welded by iron rods and concrete to the key itself. A bare black rock 150 feet long, maybe 40 wide. That's at low tide. At high tide, just the light rising 110 feet straight up out of the ocean. And all about it, the churning water, gray-green, scum-dappled, warm as soup, and swarming with gigantic bat-like devilfish, great violet schools of Portuguese man-o-war, and, yes, sharks, the big ones, the 15-footers. And as if this wasn't enough, there was a hot, dank, rotten-smelling wind that came at us day and night off the jungle swamps of the mainland. A wind that smelled like death. Set in the base of the light was a watertight bronze door. And in you went and up. Yes, up 
and up and round and round, past the tanks of oil and the coils of rope. After World War II ended, transcription became a network possibility as CBS and ABC in particular pumped resources into programming. New mystery programs like The Haunting Hour and Murder at Midnight entered syndication. Mutuals short-lived The Sealed Book and ABC's Dark Venture, both launched in 1945. And NBC gave Abbott and Costello summer time slot to a Peter Lorre mystery and suspense program called Mysteries in the Air. It was CBS's Escape, however, that's come to be known as one of the best written shows in radio history. The first story editor on Escape was a man named John Meston. John Meston went on from being story editor at CBS out on the coast to being creator of Gunsmoke. Gunsmoke, oh yes. A and real John Meston was followed by John Dunkel, a very, very intellectual type fellow. And it was John Meston and John Dunkel who were principally responsible for the selection of the material and the acquisition of it. Their contribution was superb. Practically never did I disagree with them. So if you were complimenting the quality of the material on Escape, that, those were the two men who were responsible for it. The quality of the production was mine when I was doing it. Other people also did the show through the years. Debuting on July 7th, 1947, and save for a short sponsorship between April and August of 1950 from the Richfield Oil Company, the show was network-sustained. It was scheduled erratically and dropped often, but it developed a cult following. That was Norm MacDonald's show, by the way. All I know is that some of the finest roles and some of the most classic stories came up on that show. Bill Robeson did it for a while. Working with Bill Robeson was always interesting because there was a lunch break. The first two acts would be rehearsed in tremendous detail with extreme synchronization of sound effects and balance and everything. And after lunch, we never got around to the third act of the dress rehearsal. <laughs> and so the last part of the show was always sort of winged. <laughs> the best part. Each episode began with a series of questions, which by the 1950s had settled into. Tired of the everyday routine? Ever dream of a life of romantic adventure? Want to get away from it all? We offer you... Escape! Escape, designed to free you from the four walls of today for a half hour of high adventure. Tonight, we escape to a lonely lighthouse off the steaming jungle coast of French Guiana and a nightmare world of terror and violence. As we bring you again in response to hundreds of requests, Three Skeleton Key, starring Vincent Price. Brilliant show. Uh, The young fellow who wrote it, I challenged him to write it. He was sort of trying to get into movies, and his name was James Poe. And he's since won about five Academy Awards. And uh, he couldn't really get started. He couldn't get off the ground. He and his wife were great friends of ours. And I said, why don't you write me a radio show? 
He said, I don't know how to write for radio. And I said, what do you mean you don't know how to write for radio? You write. You create visual effects. You do, you know. So he searched around. He found this short story and he adapted it to radio. And it really made his reputation, this story, because it became one of the great, really one of the great radio shows ever done. She was a beauty, big steel and bronze baby with the sun gleaming through the glass walls all about, bouncing, blinding little beams off the big shining reflectors, glittering and refracting through her lenses. The whole gigantic bulk of her balanced like a ballerina on the glistening steel axle of her rotary mechanism. She was a sweetheart of a light. And use more stories of supernatural and of action than its sister show, Suspense. This opening is from the March 17, 1950 episode called Three Skeleton Key and starring Vincent Price. It was thanks in part to radio that Price would eventually be known for macabre performances. Well, you know, I was doing a play, and my first play in New York was a big hit. It was one of those extraordinary breaks that you get or you don't get, and it was a play opposite Helen Hayes, and it ran for three years. And there was no chance of sort of going out and doing other plays. I would go out in the summer, we'd lay off for a month, and I'd go do summer stock in Skowhegan, Maine, or all around here. And that was experience. But I felt that the one experience that I really could afford and get in New York was to work on soap operas. And marvelous things like John's Other Wife, you know. And I mean, extraordinary soap opera stories. And I would go work without a name, without anything, because I was not part of the radio group, but I could get jobs because I was in a hit play. And I would take advantage of that. And I worked on radio every single week and maybe would do five or six shows a week playing in these different kinds of radio dramas. And I learned my business, how you really create a part orally. And it was exciting and wonderful experience. Adventures of the Saint, starring Vincent Price. Beginning in the summer of 1947, Price starred as Simon Templer, the Robin Hood of modern crime, in The Saint. He was an upscale private detective. The Saint, based on characters created by Leslie Charteris and known to millions from books, magazines, and motion pictures. The Robin Hood of modern crime now comes transcribed to radio, starring Hollywood's brilliant and talented actor Vincent Price as... The Saint. I'm not home. It's the middle of the night and I'm asleep. I'm in Schenectady, sitting up with a sick aunt. Oh. Hello. Hello. Are you Simon Templer? Well, come in and we'll compare Social Security cards. Thank you. I thought you were in Schenectady. Never heard of the place. Sitting up with a sick aunt. She recovered suddenly. Simon... I need help, desperately. Why? Because I'm dead. You're what? Dead. 
Oh, well, of course, some of my best friends... Simon, my name is Francis Blake. Here, read this. Read? That little item down in the corner, under obituaries. Obituaries? Hmm. It says here that the body of Francis Blake is at the Restwell Chapel, burial at noon tomorrow. You see, the newspapers say that I'm dead. Yeah, but I don't know whether to believe them or not. You uh, are Francis Blake? Oh, of course I am. Hmm. Come here a moment. All right. Thank you. Now... Simon, what are you... Oh, I beg your pardon. You... You pinched me. Yes. But... Well, I had to make sure I wasn't dreaming. But you're supposed to pinch yourself if you think you're dreaming. I know, but this way was more fun. Also, I never heard a corpse say ouch before. Therefore, you're not dead. I already knew that. I didn't. Now that that's settled, I think perhaps we ought to go visit. Visit whom? Your corpse. It was a challenge that I wanted very much at that point in my career to try and create somebody, you know, I mean, completely. Mm -hmm. I'm not really that interested in doing that kind of a thing in television. The Mm -hmm. saint had a lot more dimensions than you're allowed in television as a character. You're visual, and therefore you're limited, but in a radio drama, you can create anything you want. And it has more excitement, really, as an acting medium. Louis should perhaps be explained. He's a cab driver I try to avoid. I rarely succeed. Which proves to me that my life isn't all that it should be. Keep it clean. And where at this hour of the night are you going? The Restwell Chapel. Get another cab. Louis. Okay, okay. By the summer of 1950, the show had moved to NBC. Often, his episode co-stars included Lawrence Dobkin and the incredibly versatile... Lorraine Tuttle. Who's dead? Miss Blake. Huh? Me. Excuse me, but Louis, I got don't take I your hands off gonna... the wheel. I already did. Yes, so? She said, ouch. Personally, I would have liked to find out for myself. But it really is extraordinary. And you know, you mentioned earlier today when we were talking about that she is famous for having done so many parts on one show. It may have been this show. 20th Century Fox, when I was under contract as a movie actor to him. I had written in my contract that I wanted the freedom to do radio. Now, there was no television at that time. And they were very sticky about it. They were really kind of angry that I should want this. And I said, I feel radio is my training ground, and that's where I want to work. But they let me do it. And so, of all the contract players, I was the only one who was allowed to do it. Anytime I wanted to do it, and it didn't interfere with their films. Well, then they finally had their own radio show on the air, and I can't remember what it was called. I think, anyway, there was one show where they had two little starlets, little pretty girls who were very sweet and who were up-and-coming stars, and they were on the show, and then there was one of their character women on the show, and none of them could do radio, because radio is not just getting up and reading. It is acting, you know, and they couldn't do it, and Lorene was playing the mother on it. Well, my name is Mrs. Frank Bosley, 212 Fremont Place, Olympia 24596. Is that what you want? I guess so. So, after about two days of rehearsal, they suddenly told one of the little starlets that she would have to go, so Lorene took that part. Then about another day, and they got rid of the next little starlet, and Lorene took her part. Goodbye. Now, wait a minute, Effie. You can't leave like this, not without... Oh, all right. I'll talk to you while I'm putting my hat on. Well, can't you at least look at me? 
After all, you should give me a chance to justify... Sam, apparently you're laboring under an apprehension. Of course I am. Oh, boy, am I glad I picked the last in June and the first in July. What are you talking about? My vacation. Vacation? You just had a vacation. And it ended up with Irene playing, I think, five or six different parts. Incredible. And it ended up... Lorene was a great friend of mine, and she had been the leading lady on the saint for a long, long time with me. <laughs> it ended up with my being absolutely hysterical, because she was playing a, a woman 80, a woman 50, a woman 40, a child 13. You know, I mean, just any part that came up, and it was only Lorene and myself <laughs> in a show that should have been seven people. And I finally had to work on a separate mic because I couldn't look at it. <laughs> because she changed the whole characterization. Absolutely brilliant she was. Suspense. as we open a special limited series of five Friday night performances at this hour, suspense brings you an incomparable study in terror. It is Edgar Allan Poe's The Pit and the Pendulum. After the November 20th, 1947 episode of Suspense, Roma Wines wrapped up its sponsorship of the series. For the next five weeks, CBS broadcast Suspense on Friday evenings. Beginning on January 3rd, 1948, the program changed directions. This is Robert Montgomery. I have a new assignment, and I'm very happy about it. During these 60 minutes each Saturday, I'm to be acting spokesman for one of radio's really great entertainments, a program which is a prime favorite with all of us. You have come to know its opening music as the curtain raiser for radio's outstanding theater of thrills. You know it as a show which each week, for five years, has brought you first-class story material and exciting performances. You have come to recognize throughout the unique touch of our unique producer, my friend, Bill Spear. All of which can be said in one word. Suspense! An hour of suspense now. William Spear's last date with the production was January 24th, with the episode Eve, starring June Havoc. Frank? Is that you, Frank? Well, darling, we'd better get a move on. You know how Azadia is about her sit-down dinners. It's after seven now, and it'll... Oh, Frank, you're not even dressed. I can't go, baby. Oh, for heaven's sake. What do you mean you can't go? I've just been on the phone half an hour. They were married the next day. Let's talk about your radio career, June. And, Bill, I want to get you in on this because you certainly work together. Something that I never realized was that June Havoc appeared on any number of your shows and was never given any credit. Now, tell me why that was. Maybe, June, maybe, maybe you want to... Uh, June, you I'd better love tell, to tell. Right. I got all the credit in the world. I got taken to dinner every night. <laughs> I got wooed. I got an engagement ring and a wedding ring out of it. So I got plenty out of it. Yes, I got a marvelous man out of it, a brilliant man. And 23 years, he'll say it's 24. Don't listen to me. Coming up. <laughs> but it is coming up, 24 years of marriage. In those days... As a star, a film actress at the time, what I would do when I did a radio show was you would appear and it would all be very posh and your agent would be standing by and you'd have a special microphone of your very own and then you'd have um, 
uh, all sorts of marvelous treatment, and the really marvelous radio actors would be way over there surrounding one microphone. <laughs> and I did that, you know, whenever one did a radio show, and then eventually, when I got to know Bill well enough to be asked out and asked for dinner, he was doing suspense and Sam Spade, and he'd say, why don't you sit in the booth with me, and when I'm through doing the show, we'll go and dine. So I sat in the booth long enough to envy those actors. He's a wonderful, wonderful, marvelous director. And so I asked him one night, very I batted my eyelashes and asked him if he would let me be one of the anonymous actors, because they didn't get billing. They're just marvelous. They're all stars today. Mm -hmm, mm -hmm. And... uh, after a while, they did accept me, but it was pretty rough, the producer-director girl sitting in there taking a job <laughs> from somebody when she didn't need it, you know. And she, But it worked, and I learned a great deal. And I played toothless old hags and Chinese people, and I played myself twice. I was twins once. Really? I murdered myself. It was well, very difficult. It was a challenge. <laughs> we have never had this opportunity on the program to ask a stage star and a motion picture star how she adapted to to radio was it difficult for you at first yes it's an entirely different medium and i originated as you know probably on the stage and uh, when i first did my first film acting i was in a I, in fact i wasn't really i've never been very good at it it's not my medium and then television is even more difficult that's not my medium either i prefer the stage and it's very simple isn't it to hear me say that radio was the closest to what I really loved. When the couple finished honeymooning, Spear looked for his next project. He found it on the American Broadcasting Company. The following program is transcribed from an earlier network broadcast. The Clock. Sunrise and sunset, promise and fulfillment, birth and death. The whole drama of life is written in the sands of time. March 4th, 1948, ABC's production of their macabre mystery series, The Clock, was moved to Hollywood and turned over to Bill Spear. The American Broadcasting Company presents another in a series of dramatic programs, The Clock. From Hollywood, The Clock stars Kathy and Elliot Lewis, the airwaves' most distinguished acting couple, and is produced and directed by radio's master of the art of suspense, William Spear. This Hollywood debut stars Elliot and Kathy Lewis as Nikki and Louise Kane, with supporting roles played by Hans Conrad, William Conrad, and Alan Reed. For the infant, time is merely an unnecessary interval between feedings. Nikki Kane is a prisoner on death row. He promises his wife that he'll come back to her, alive or dead. The series was short-lived. It lasted 12 weeks before being canceled. Spear was back as producer, but not director of Suspense in 1949. Spear's other show, The Adventures of Sam Spade, remained on CBS through this whole period. When Spear left Suspense again in 1950, it was Elliot Lewis he turned the production over to. To me, acting is kind of dull, and so I wanted to go and do the other things. And Bill Spear, who was producing and directing Suspense, and was, to my mind, probably the greatest of 
Well, you, Dick and I both agree, the greatest guy we ever met in this business, yeah, really just a wonderful guy. Marvelous. And, and Bill, I wrote scripts for him, and then he had me editing scripts all this while I was acting. And then uh, we got very close. We had a good relationship. And he wasn't well for a while, and he asked if I would produce and direct suspense for him, and I did some. Then he had to go to Europe to do a picture with June. Frank. And the Masons, James and Pamela, were married at that time. And Pamela had written a book and uh, done the adaptation, and James and June were going to co-star, and Bill was going to produce and direct. And that meant that he'd have to give up suspense. And he, in a very dramatic scene, handed me the torch and said, you go do this, I'm going to go do pictures. And I said, fine, off you go. And he said, and also take care of Howard and Sam Spade for me while I'm gone. This is CBS, the Columbia Broadcasting System. Are you new to old-time radio? A hardcore fan? Curious, but don't know where to start? Try the Mysterious Old Radio Listening Society, a podcast dedicated to the great horror, crime, and suspense shows from the golden age of radio, including tales from Suspense, Lights Out, Quiet Please, The Shadow, and more. Each episode features a classic or maybe not-so-classic story from the old-time radio vault, complete with historical notes and trivia. At the end of each podcast, your mysterious old hosts, Tim, Joshua, and Eric, discuss the merits of the story and decide whether or not it stands the test of time, balancing insight and humor to make you think harder about what made these old shows so great, even when they aren't so great. The Mysterious Old Radio Listening Society is available everywhere you get your podcasts, as long as you get your podcast from iTunes or Podbean. For more information about the Mysterious Old Radio Listening Society, or to download episodes directly, visit ghoulishdelights.com. And now back to Breaking Walls. Quiet, please. Quiet, please. Mutual Broadcasting System presents Quiet, Please, which is written and directed by Willis Cooper and which features Ernest Chappell. Quiet, Please, for tonight is called Whence Came You? I came from Jerusalem. I've traveled in the East a good deal in the last 20-odd years, and I flatter myself that I know my way around. On Sunday, June 7th, 1947, at 3.30 p.m., the Mutual Broadcasting System debuted Quiet, Please, written and produced by the creator of Lights Out, Willis Cooper. Although Cooper never achieved the fame that his Lights Out successor, Arch Obler, did, within the radio industry, he was considered one of radio's best at creating surrealist drama. Cesar Franck's Symphony in D Minor on organ opened the program. His choice for male lead was an unusual one, Ernest Chappell. Chappell had been involved in radio from 1925, when he was a student at Syracuse University, and was perhaps best remembered as the Campbell's Soup's Pitchman on Orson Welles' Campbell's Playhouse. We had an announcer. I had for years, I had a show for Campbell's Soup. 
which was called the Campbell Playhouse, and we had an announcer called Chappell. Ernest Chappell. Ernest Chappell had a very earnest oh. and dramatic voice, and he used to rehearse his commercials very seriously, and he had, there was a running line for a year, which was, as sure as you like chicken, you like Campbell's chicken soup. Now, I had been sent by somebody <laughs> the reading a copy along. of the Poulterer's Gazette in which Campbell's Soup was advertising for old roosters. Now, as a matter of fact, roosters make the best soup and very old chickens, but we didn't know that. We thought it was funny. So I had my cast every week in dress rehearsal while Chapel was saying, you like Campbell's chicken soup, we were saying rooster soup right along with him. And he would say, now, fellows, you know I'm going to go on the air and I'm going to say rooster. <laughs> he did. He did. <laughs> but Chapel's voice was perfect for Quiet, Please. He played every man that got tied up in the supernatural. Few supporting voices could be afforded or deployed. The cast was told to play it straight. The result was an almost dreamlike study in horror high art. In this episode, Whence Came You, originally broadcast on February 16, 1948, an archaeologist finds something at his dig site that he can't comprehend. Something that may bring him a world of beauty or terrible death to him and everybody else. So I sit here and the little bronze lamp is flickering low. No, I haven't opened the coffin. I'm afraid to. Cooper closed each show with midnight black humor twinge notes about the next performance. Quiet Please shifted to ABC in September of 1948 before going off the air on June 25th, 1949. You have listened to Quiet, Please, which is written and directed by Willis Cooper. The man who spoke to you was Ernest Chappell. And Murray Forbes played Abe Feldman. To put it very simply, I have respect for one thing only. That is not temperament. But talent, all the rest of it is just dressing. It's nonsense. I got along beautifully with actors and actresses. Unlike Mr. Hitchcock, I respect actors and actresses. I don't think, as he has been widely quoted saying, that he thinks they're children and he wish he could do without them. I think they have a very difficult task. They live a very difficult life. Most people don't realize that the average life of an actor is seven years. Seven earning years. So if they have trepidations and nerves and concerns. My only episodes with actors, and that particularly one that you uh, talk about, uh, was a man now deceased by the name of Lou Merrill. A very fine actor. But he had all sorts of inner hates and inner turmoils. And unfortunately, I think in this broadcast, we're doing one with, I think it was Greer Garson. And he was playing opposite her, and he was difficult. Oh, we had so little time. And through the microphone, all through the rehearsal, he was making all kinds of scurrilous remarks at his director. 
And just before we went in the air, he said something, and I don't remember anything except literally seeing red. And they tell me I tore out of the control room, tore into the studio, ran up to him, and with the hardest punch I've ever thrown, and I used to fight in the ring when I was young, I hit him smack on the jaw. Since he outweighed me about three to one, shuddered, and just at that moment I saw the red arm of the clock go up to tell me that we were on the air. The red light went on, and I pointed at him, and the reflex action worked. He began to talk, and he did a beautiful performance. And after that, we were very, very good friends. We never had any more trouble. Lumero, the man Arch Obler punched, voiced Thomas Highland in Crime Classics, a macabre program that dramatized historical crimes. Good evening. This is Crime Classics. I am Thomas Highland with another true story of crime. Listen. A man walking along a cobbled street in Whitechapel. It's an April evening and a pleasant one. A spring rain has just finished and the street lamp spread skins of light over the wetted pavements. Stroll. Nowhere in particular. Hanbury Street is as good as any other. But look there. The young woman waiting. Well, look who it is, won't you? If it ain't old saucy you itself. Pleasant night, ain't it? Walk in, will you? I walk along with you, you won't mind. <sighs> I like April, don't you? And the rain makes everything fresh and nice, don't it? Oh, now, there's a pretty garden, ain't it? Flowers already... <coughs> It was created by Elliot Lewis and came to radio late in the Golden Age, first airing on CBS on Monday, June 15, 1953. Crime Classics grew out of Lewis's deep interest in history's great murder cases. Tonight, my report to you on... Good evening. My name is Jack the Ripper. Crime Classics, a series of true crime stories taken from the records and newspapers of every land from every time. Your host each week, Mr. Thomas Highland, connoisseur of crime, student of violence, and teller of murders. Now once again, Mr. Thomas Highland. He had compiled an extensive library of true crime, often with primary source material dating back to the 17th century. Each episode traveled back in time to when the crimes occurred. Care was taken to construct dialogues, attitudes. Writers Morton Fine and David Freakin would comb through the periodicals with Lewis. The year was 1888, and the place was London. The first murder had taken place on... Radio Life said of their humor and arsenic-laced, crime classics writing style. It wasn't enough to make light of murder, just enough to let a breath of fresh air enter their tale of horror scripts. The second murder took place not far from the first. Unfortunately, the 1953-54 season was the last in which the major networks were putting any money into radio. Crime Classics found no sponsor, and on June 30th, 1954, it went off the air. One day heaven extended its a resistible arm and held the cleaver of fate in its fist and it cut us off. Uh, radio died in the fall of 19... 
1953, I suppose, that last season. And it had to die suddenly and violently because the networks could no longer sustain it because they intended to go into the new medium television. If they had tried to hold on to radios they might have for a season or two, there would have been other moneyed interests to create the television industry, you see. But on that occasion, the, tele the radio industry had only to turn to its sponsors and said, we have something new for you to buy, something wonderful and three-dimensional now. So we're going to discard this little thing, radio, and the sponsors, very understandingly, nodded their head and bought the new product. Those actors of us who had been made our living in radio were completely discarded. There were some very bright young men in television, and there was an opprobrium to having been a radio actor. It was said that you were a ham, that you made faces when you acted, and that was true to a certain extent. You're saying something that has never been said before, to my knowledge, that the networks themselves killed the medium. Well, they had to. Yes, yeah, surely you had to destroy. It's the story of the little Jewish lady who had two chickens, and when one fell sick, she killed the the well one in order to make chicken soup for the sake. <laughs> <laughs> the networks began to pump all their resources into television. Inner Sanctum Mysteries went off the air on October 5, 1952. Escape on September 25, 1954. The Shadow on December 26, 1954. The Whistler on September 8, 1955. Only Suspense hung on. Its last Autolite sponsored show was Monday, June 7, 1954. It continued to limp forward with shrinking budgets and audiences. By the end of 1956, radio's master of mystery and suspense, William N. Robeson, was in charge of the production. That lasted until August of 1959, when CBS shuttered its last few remaining Hollywood radio productions, moving their last dramas to New York. Suspense was a very, very important show. I must say that I was not the director of suspense in its heyday. Bill Spear was. And Bill Spear uh, did not create suspense, but made it the great show that it was. I came along at a time when radio was paring down all of the uh, adjuncts to great production in terms of money for stars, uh, money for cast, money for orchestra, et cetera, et cetera. And uh, to give you an example of how grim it was out in 1959, they removed suspense from the West Coast to New York for production in New York in order to save $80 in sound effects technicians. $80 in 1959 is less than $700 today. Bruno Zerato Jr. directed the program until June of 1962 when Fred Hedrickson took over. The wrists are cut. He killed himself. No. No, it's he. It's the ghost that we saw. Yes, Everts. The body of Jason O'Flynn and so perfectly preserved as, as though he died only moments ago. This is audio from the last episode of Suspense entitled Until Devilstone. It aired from New York on September 30th, 1962. On this Sunday, Suspense and Yours Truly Johnny Dollar aired for the last time. Although September 30th, 1962 is partially misrepresented as the final day of radio drama, it really was the last day for CBS's dramatic radio. Jack Johnstone wrote both final episodes that aired that day. I don't know. For the last year, I only wrote it. I, they moved production out of Hollywood entirely. I wrote the last year of it. As a matter of fact, the last Johnny Dollar and the last Suspense occurred on the same night. One followed the other. And the Johnny Dollar was written by Jack Johnstone, and the Suspense was written by Jonathan Bundy. 
Bundy was my wife's name. Suspense. You've been listening to Devil Stone, starring Christopher Carey and Neil Fitzgerald, and written especially for Suspense by Jonathan Bundy. Quite honestly, I have to be honest about it, I thought New York production of those shows was pretty bad compared with our Hollywood standards during that last year when production of both those shows was done in New York. Every weekday evening, Chris Schenkel is anchorman for a globe-girdling roundup of first-hand reports on sports activities everywhere. Make this your address for worldwide sports every weeknight. He who laughs oftenest Here's Arthur Godfrey Time weekdays on the CBS radio network. In the end, the biggest murderer in radio history was, in fact, television. Although major radio network drama didn't truly die on September 30th, 1962. Monitor. 4 p.m. Eastern Daylight Time. NBC launched Monitor on June 12th, 1955. It was a true magazine of the air running over NBC stations on Saturday mornings in four-hour blocks. When it first began, it ran until midnight Sunday, completely taking over NBC's airtime on the weekends. It was the brainchild of legendary NBC radio and television network president Sylvester Pat Weaver, whose career bridged classic radio and television infancy, who sought to keep radio alive in the television age. Good afternoon, ladies and gentlemen, and welcome to Monitor, our new NBC weekend radio service. This is a preview, which will be seen on television for the next hour, and it will be heard on radio until midnight tonight, New York time. But beginning next week, Monitor... Believing that broadcasting could and should educate as well as entertain, Weaver created a series to do both, with some of the best-regarded names in broadcasting, entertainment, journalism, and literature taking part. Monitor offered actualities, remotes, comedy, and variety. Segments were hosted by and featured everyone from NBC announcers Dave Garraway, Ben Grauer, to baseball's Red Barber, to Miss Monitor Teddy Thurman, to comedians Bob Elliott and Ray Goulding. The show aired from a mammoth NBC studio in New York City called Radio Central, created especially for the program, on the fifth floor of the RCA building in Midtown Manhattan. Monitor remained on the air until January 26th, 1974. Theater 5 has presented Joey, starring Mr. Peter Donald, written by Robert Sanadella, directed by Ted Bell. Featured in the cast, Natalie Priest, Cecil ABC Moore, revived their dramatic radio at the short-lived Theater 5 in 1964. It ran weekdays from New York. Unfortunately, the half-hour time slot allocated only about 21 minutes of story time, with nine minutes going to station ID and local advertising. Theater 5 went off the air on June 30, 1965, after airing this episode called Joey. I'm Rod Sterling. You're listening to The Zero Hour. Rest your eyes. Exercise your imagination. Both Hyman Brown and Elliot Lewis got chances to help revive dramatic radio in the 1970s and 1980s. In Hollywood, Lewis was brought in to direct The Zero Hour in late 1973 with producer Jam Kolos and host Rod Serling. And later, the series of Mutual Radio Theater, 
between 1979 and 1981 with Fletcher Markle. For a multitude of reasons covered in Breaking Walls episode number 73, neither stuck long term. As I go back into what I know about your career, and instead of starting at the beginning, going back from now, we look back about nine years ago and you were directing and producing a series called The Zero Hour, which was syndicated. Yeah, radio show. I listened to some of those tapes of that show, and, uh, you know, you guys did just about everything you could possibly do. You had top-line talent, good writing, solid stories. Mm -hmm. Why didn't it work? They couldn't sell it. That's what I mean. Meanwhile, in New York, Hyman Brown, then in his 60s, got the chance to produce the CBS Radio Mystery Theater, beginning January 6th, 1974. The need to bring back radio drama was in me. Radio had become music and news and a service rather than an entertainment. Fortunately, Sam Diggs, who is the president of CBS Radio, and I, we were old friends, and we would kick this around at lunch once or twice every six or eight months. And then about a year or a year and a half ago, when I came to him with this idea of seven nights a week to create a habit once again so that the station that carries the drama can truly say, we're the drama station. Stations, as you know today, radio stations, are programs. A station plays a particular kind of thing. It's either all news or all rock. Here we are, back with something where the station can say, we are the drama station. you got to give them a reason for this. In an attempt to repattern stations and listeners, Brown ambitiously produced mystery drama seven nights per week. E.G. Marshall hosted. High Brown has always had the idea. High Brown was always sorry to see television take over. When was the proper time for it? Now the proper time is now because it's being done, so I'm happy that it is being done now. I don't know what situation exists today for it that did not exist five years ago. I don't know, maybe sociologists can figure those things out when they're making these study of ethnographic populations and so forth. But I don't think the storytelling thing has ever left us. Every time you take your child to bed or you go someplace or someone to say, read us a story, read us a story. One person, one individual sitting alone in his room with his radio now is a part of that show, is part of that performance because he with his imagination or she with her imagination, builds the castle, makes the river, and flies the ocean, and so forth. You bring your imagination. You are a part of the performance in radio. CBS gave Brown the airtime, but little money or anything else. Affiliates were free to tape delay or drop the show from its schedule at will without making any announcements to the listening public. The CBS Radio Mystery Theater lasted until December 31st, 1982, closing down the radio mystery to the major networks. Although Brown himself revived and replayed the series in the late 1990s, taking over as host and supplying his own high-fidelity recordings from the original run. Well, perhaps that's the way it happens. Perhaps it isn't. All we can do is pass the story along to you as it came to us. Each of us, whether he is aware of it or not, has his own thoughts upon death and what follows. Based on what he has witnessed, what he feels in his heart, and maybe what he has heard on Mystery Theater. In 1997, John Dunning wrote that in the 1990s, much like the 60s, 70s, and 80s, for dramatic radio to have any chance at success, it would need to be approached as it was on the BBC in England, where it was never allowed to die. In 1997, Dunning would have been correct. But in 2018, thanks to high-speed internet, MP3s, and podcasts, audio drama has once again risen from the dead. So where do we go from here? 
Well, sometimes in order to know where we're going, we need to know where we've been. Good evening, friends. Once again, the Wheel of Chance, or uh, fate, as you please, is about to revolve. And as the barker, standing at the Wheel of Fortune, says, around, around she goes, and where she stops, nobody knows. Now, does anybody know what... Who'll, uh, who'll speak for the group? I will. I'm Frank Major. Uh, we're looking for jobs. How about it? <laughs> uh, everyone that's ever heard us liked us. We think we're pretty good. And we play real swing music, too. Real modern swing music, ultra-modern music. What's your tune? The Choice of an Aching Heart. The Choice of an Aching Heart. You made me what I am today. Next time on Breaking Walls, a brash, skinny kid from Hoboken, New Jersey becomes one of the most popular and influential music artists of the 20th century, selling more than 150 million records worldwide, winning an Academy Award for Best Actor, and using radio to launch it all. I've got you under my skin. The reading material used for today's episode was Encyclopedia of Old Time Radio by John Dunning, The Witch's Tale, Stories of Gothic Horror from the Golden Age of Radio by Alonzo Dean Cole, The CBS Radio Mystery Theater Handbook by Martin Grahams Jr. and Gordon Payton, Forecast, Is There a Sponsor in the House by Martin Grahams Jr., and the Museum of Broadcast Communications Encyclopedia of Radio by Christopher H. Sterling. Today's episode of Breaking Walls could not have been done without the interviews by Dick Bertel, Ed Corcoran, John Dunning, Spurvak, and Chuck Shaden. The Society to Preserve and Encourage Radio Drama, Variety, and Comedy will be having their next convention this November 1st through the 3rd at the Crown Plaza Hotel at 3131 Bristol Street in Costa Mesa, California. For more information, please go to Spurvac.com. Dick Bertel and Ed Corcoran's Golden Age of Radio programs can be found at goldenage-wtic.org. John Dunning's interviews can be found through the Old Time Radio Researchers Library at otrrlibrary.org. And Chuck Shaden's interviews can be found at his site, speakingofradio.com. Selected music used in today's episode was Seance on a Wet Afternoon, composed by John Barry and re-recorded by Nick Rain, and I've Got You Under My Skin by Frank Sinatra. As always, I'd like to thank our sponsors, the Fireside Mystery Theater, based in New York, 12 Chimes It's Midnight, based in San Francisco, and the Mysterious Old Radio Listening Society, based in Minneapolis. All three shows are available wherever you get your podcasts and all three put on live spooky audio drama. Breaking Walls episode number 85 will focus on the radio career of Old Blue Eyes himself, Frank Sinatra, and will be available beginning All Saints Day, November 1st, 2018, through thewallbreakers.com and everywhere you get your podcasts. And I hope, by the way, to have new audio drama news to share in the coming weeks. In the meantime, if you're listening to Breaking Walls through iTunes, give me a quick rating. Each rating helps more people who would potentially love to know about the golden age of radio discover this show. And if you've got some spare change lying around, you can become a Breaking Wall supporter for as little as $1 per month by going to patreon.com slash thewallbreakers. 
So until November 1st, my name is James Scully. This has been Breaking Walls, episode number 84. And I'll see you on the other side. Thank you very much. Why not use your mentality? Step up, wake up to reality. But each time I do, just the thought of you makes me stop just before I begin. Cause I've got you under my skin. Yes, I've got you under my skin.